1: New Hampshire's talk radio station. My name is Av Harris, and I am once again in the host chair, filling in for your regular host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. Just a few days ago, the trustees of the Medicare and Social Security Trust Funds released their annual reports on the state of those massive programs, and we're going to focus on that for today's program. We'll get a deeper understanding of what's in those reports and what it means for us, those of us who pay into Social Security and Medicare, as well as present and future beneficiaries of these key social safety net programs. Joining me today to help unpack all of this is Concord Coalition Executive Director and your regular host, Bob Bixby, as well as our Chief Economist, Steve Robinson, and Policy Director, Tori Gorman. All right, Bob, let's start with you. We at the Concord Coalition put out a statement when the Social Security and Medicare Trustees reports were released, and that statement said that these reports show that we're creeping towards a fiscal cliff, and I quote, the reports sound a blaring alarm. So, Bob, here's your chance to sound that alarm. What is that cliff, and what do we need to know? I guess there are really two cliffs, one for Medicare and one for
2: Social Security, And what we were trying to get at in that statement and the blaring alarm is that both programs are headed for trust fund insolvency in the relatively near future. With Medicare, it's a little bit more urgent. The trustees say that the Medicare Part A trust fund, which pays for hospital care, is uh, scheduled to become insolvent in 2028. And uh, for Social Security... They say that the trust fund insolvency date for the main trust fund, which is the retirement uh, trust fund, would be uh, 2034. Now, with Social Security, a lot of times people refer to the combined trust funds, which is old age and retirement, OASDI. And the combined date for those trust funds is 2035. So, you may well hear Social Security is scheduled for, uh, you know, to be insolvent in 2035. So, the main point of that, and that's not very far away. So, uh, and of course, Medicare is much closer. So that the cliff is really that what what happens if these trust funds go solvent? I mean, that's, that's the cliff. And basically what happens is that the programs would not be able to cover their full expenses. So with Social Security, the trustees say it would only be able to cover uh, 80% of the promised benefits by 2035. And Medicare Part A would only be able to cover... 90% of its program costs. And, uh, you know, just to, to put a point on that, particularly on Social Security, if you are, say, born in 1968, uh, you're, you, you've got the lucky number and the, I don't know if it's lucky number, but you know, you're, you're scheduled to, to, to be eligible for full re- retirement benefits in 2035. So you'd be paying in the full payroll tax your whole working career. And then as you go to collect benefits in 2035, uh, you would be told, well, you get a 20 percent benefit cut from what from what you were expecting. Now, none of us on this panel think that that is actually going to happen. And we can talk about what the uh, uh, alternatives would be. But that's really what the fiscal cliff is for both of those programs.
1: It's interesting, too, because this is also coming at a time when the population of retirees is expected to grow, is growing now and is expected to grow by more than 50% over the next decade or so as more and more boomers become eligible for Social Security and Medicare. So pretty bad timing, right, for For the cliffs you're talking about?
2: Yeah, well, the boomers are actually causing the cliff. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're <laughs> contributing to the cliff. It's uh, not just an accident of timing. It's because the... Pro, because so many more people are becoming eligible for benefits uh, without any adjustment in the income to those programs, the outgo exceeds the income and hence the trust funds get drawn down and become insolvent. So uh, it is really a matter of the demographics which are driving the problem. But as you say, uh, the, the you know, the, the, the irony there is that it, it is people who are uh, most reliant on those programs in their retirement years who, um, uh, you know, can can least afford to have them uh, go insolvent.
1: So you explained this a little bit, but I wonder if you could break it down to uh, simple terms for somebody like me. So let's say I become eligible for Social Security, Medicare in 2040. You're not saying Medicare is just going to be gone in 2028 if Congress doesn't do something or that Social Security is going to be gone by 2035 if Congress doesn't do something. But what does it mean? What could it mean for somebody like me who may think that these programs aren't going to be around uh, when I hit retirement and I better be making alternative plans?
2: People should understand that the trust fund insolvency doesn't mean that the programs go away or they can't pay benefits. What it means is that the programs can only they only have authority to cover as much as they can through the payroll taxes. And in Medicare's case, uh, um, well, it's basically payroll taxes for Part A that come into the system. When the trust funds are are gone, uh, run out, it means that they don't have any sort of special borrowing authority from the Treasury. They've run out of that from their trust funds. So they can only by law, pay what uh, they're limited by the amount of uh, income that 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 comes in. And so nobody's actually quite sure what would happen Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the case of of insolvency. Don't want to
1: take that. Most people. Yeah.
2: And we don't want to find out. But the thing is that, uh, you know, literally, if you are limited by the amount of money that comes in, the Social Security Administration really doesn't have authority to say, well, we're going to pay some people based on need and we're not going to the, 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 the secretary uh, of the Treasury or the uh, uh, commissioner of Social Security doesn't have that authority to make those sort of decisions. So, you know, a lot of people think literally you'd have an across the board benefit cut to, you know, tied to the amount of income that's coming in. But it doesn't mean that the programs would actually go away, but it does mean that there is a big problem that is yet to be solved.
1: Well, one of the things too is that you already hear um, a lot of discussion, and I wouldn't say complaints, but but from physicians, right, who who have uh, older patients, that the Medicare reimbursement rates that they're getting are already uh, not really uh, sufficient to either cover costs or, or uh, a lot of people are dropping their Medicare patients already. So, if we're looking at you know the for instance, Medicare reimbursement rates going down maybe by 20 percent is what maybe. Ten, well, it's 10 percent on saying. Medicare. Well, let, well, let's say it's a 10 percent uh, cut that then you could foresee a situation where more medical providers would just stop taking Medicare patients because it's just not worth it for them financially. Yeah, that I mean, that's, that, that's, that's really the issue. I,
2: I think that some people think, well, you know, Medicare Part A uh, pays hospitals and so it really beneficiaries wouldn't be hurt if there was a cut. But but they they really would be because uh, is, as you point out, uh, Medicare doesn't reimburse as much as uh, many private health care plans do. So, uh, you know, the thinking is that hospitals would take fewer Medicare patients and there would be some sort of limitation on, on access. Now, other people say, well, Medicare is so important that would never happen. Uh, on the other hand, Hospitals or businesses, too. And, uh, you know, if you get reimbursement rates that are sufficiently low that if they took a lot too many Medicare patients, they'd be going out of business, there would be adjustments to make. So actually, the trustees are very, very concerned about this issue, not just in the short term, not just in that fiscal cliff sense, but there's a little glitch in the Medicare projections. Um, It is Medicare projections because of a law enacted by Congress a few years ago assume Big savings in the out years for lots of technical reasons, but they they assume that uh, provider reimbursements are going to be ratcheted down pretty substantially uh, in the future. Nobody thinks that that's actually going to happen. The trustees and the Medicare actuaries go out of their way to say, "Look, this is going to this could cause a real access problem for Medicare beneficiaries because." If Medicare actually does limit reimbursements uh, in the way that's written into law, um, a lot of Medicare providers would literally go out of business. It wouldn't be a sustainable business model for them. So it's not just a near-term issue uh, of 2028, but it really is an endemic problem with the Medicare projections over the longer term.
1: So, uh, Tori, I want to ask you, um, are we in this state of affairs that we were basically pre-pandemic as far as how long social security and medicare trust funds have until until they're insolvent
3: exactly i mean i think that's one of the things that's driving me bonkers about this report and how people are cheering the fact that oh we've got an extra year of solvency in the social security trust fund and oh we've got a couple more years of solvency in the hospital insurance trust fund what they don't realize is that we're basically at the same place we were before COVID in terms of of exhaustion dates. And even if you go back to the year 2000, uh, when the act- actuaries at the Social Security Administration were making projections, you know, they estimated that we, the, the the retirement trust fund would exhaust itself in 2039. You know, now they're saying 2034. OK, so that's that's five years Earlier than anticipated. Um, the same thing for you know uh, the the disability uh, trust fund. Um, so you know I think it's it's a little bit of, of, of uh, myopia, if you will, in, in looking at at the the results from from this trustees report. We have a problem in these these uh, unfunded entitlement programs, and we need to solve them. And the longer we wait, the harder it's going to be. Um, you know, and that's probably something we should talk about, you know, in this program as well, is that, the, you know, the choices that we have in front of us to resolve the insolvency in these programs, those choices are becoming untenable. I mean, they're, they're just they're policies that Americans will not accept. And the longer we wait, the harder and the more painful those choices are going to become.
1: These reports tell us, OK, we are approaching cliffs both for Medicare and for Social Security There are going to be some serious consequences for the beneficiaries if we don't do anything. Mm -hmm. What do you think it will take in order for some congressional action to be taken? And what type of action are we likely to see? Are we likely to see some gimmicks, some fiscal gimmicks in order to push back the insolvency dates a little further, but not actually deal with the fundamental problems? What's your sense?
3: Okay, so let me give you first just some context, some policy context for the problem that we're dealing with. And let's just talk about Social Security for a second. So if we act today, okay, so if Congress passes legislation today to fix Social Security, retirement and disability, they could do it one of several ways. They could raise taxes, they could cut benefits um, or they could do a little bit of both. So let's look at those those choices individually. If Congress acted today to solve Social Security and they wanted to do it just with tax increases, they'd have to raise the payroll tax from 12.4 percent to 15.6 percent, which is basically a 26 percent increase overnight. Boom. And that's on every worker, everybody who's paying Social Security. Everybody pays into Social Security. Not everybody pays income tax, but everybody who has a job and receives wage and salary income pays Social Security on that first dollar earned. So if we decided to say, if we said, OK, we're not going to do this with taxes, we want to do this with, on the spending side, they'd have to reduce benefits by 20 percent for all beneficiaries, including the people that are retired today. So not just the people who are going to retire tomorrow or 10 years from now, but the people who are retired today. Now, if Congress said, whoa, 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 whoa we can't cut benefits for people who are already retired. Let's just talk about cutting benefits for future retirees. That means we'd have to cut benefits by 24% for new retirees, okay? But they'll probably do some combination of all of the above. Now, if we wait, okay, if we wait like we did in in 1984, we wait until a few months before the Social Security Trust Fund is is exhausted. So in this case, if we did this in 2035, the payroll tax would have to increase by 33%, okay, a one-third increase in the payroll tax versus 26% 26% if we do it today, we'd have to cut benefits or we'd have to cut benefits by 25% for everybody, 25% for everybody. And if we decided that we just wanted to cut benefits for future retirees, if we didn't want to do the tax increase, if we didn't want to cut benefits for existing retirees, and we just wanted to cut benefits for future retirees, we could, we'd could. we have to cut all of their benefits. In other words, we'd have to eliminate benefits 100%. No more Social Security benefits for future beneficiaries if we wait until 2035 and decide that we want to solve this problem on the backs of future retirees. There just simply isn't enough money in that cohort, those cohorts, to solve the 75-year actuarial problem. So in, in a sense, we've already waited so long that we can't fix the 75-year actuarial deficit in the in the Social Security program. We're going to have to be satisfied with incremental solutions many times over the course of 75 years to get this program back on track.
1: So, Steve, I, I want to ask you a question, uh, which is interesting because you actually worked over at the Social Security Administration for a little bit. So you have a, a, a perspective that's that's uh, different and uh, and more close up than a lot of people. One of the things that's interesting about these reports that have come out is that this is now year seven, that there have been no public trustees serving at uh, either Social Security or Medicare trust funds, um, which is a bit troubling and and to some degree shows how partisan conflict is getting in the way of public oversight of these critical programs. Um, Both of these programs are great contributors to our national debt as well. So can you talk about the role of the trustees and why it's important to have those public trustees in place?
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, under current law, there are actually six trustees. There are four trustees who are members of the administration. You have the Secretary of Treasury, you have the Secretary of Labor, you have the Secretary of Health and Human Services, and then you have the Commissioner of Social Security. And those four um, individuals uh, serve for whoever is the president at the time that, that they are, you know, appointed to those offices. But in addition to that, you have what are known as public trustees. And this, the, the history of the public trustees uh, I think dates back to, I want to say 1983 as part of the amendments uh, that, that, that we did, the last major reforms of social security. Um, they appointed um, basically a position where there are two of them and, and one is appointed uh, by the Democrats, and one is re- appointed by the Republicans. So they're, they're to be bipartisan, um, or I should say, one from each party. Uh, <laughs> whether that means bipartisan or not is, is a different question. Right. Anyway, you have a representative from, from each party, and these are members of the public. They tend to be individuals who are, you know, uh, they have some experience, either they, they were in government and worked for one of those agencies or they were in the private sector and they have some background in, you know, retirement healthcare issues, or for example, one of the most recent trustees was the former uh, director of the Congressional Budget Office. So I mean, you have individuals who are experienced in budget and, and policy, and the, the role of the public trustees is to, is to essentially provide, you know, some non-governmental oversight uh, you know, federal, federal agencies often say, well, you know, we, we have our books audited and we don't audit them ourselves. We hire, you know, some outside accounting firm to come in and audit our books. Um, and so the idea of the public trustees is they sort of serve the role of, of an outside auditor. Now, they're not technically doing an audit, but but their, their role is to be involved, you know, on a daily, you know, weekly, monthly basis uh, to the extent that, the, uh, the trustees are preparing each year's report. And so just as, as a little bit of background, the, the Social Security trustees report is required by law to be issued every year to Congress. Um, it's supposed to come out in April, but there's there's nothing in the law that says if you don't meet the deadline, there's a there's a penalty. So Congress uh, often gets the report late because the administration uh, tends to, to not deliver the report on time. Uh, for example, it was just delivered this past week, Um and obviously, this is this is now June, <laughs> and so so they missed the April deadline. But anyway, the the idea behind the public trustees is that they provide sort of a a third party, you know, non governmental uh, oversight role, and they're involved in the weekly, monthly meetings. So the uh, the trustees have a staff, um, and in fact, that was that was the role that I served at Social Security, is I was on the what's called the trustees working group, and essentially, the trustees working group is the staff members of the trustees and we meet and review all of the assumptions every year. And then we make recommendations to the trustees and the trustees can accept or reject the recommendations that that come from the staff. And those serve as the basis for, for the trustees reports. And so, you know, you have to make assumptions about, you know, what are interest rates, what's inflation, what's fertility, Uh, mortality rates, economic growth rates, and there are all sorts of economic and demographic uh, variables that affect the uh, the status of, of both Medicare and Social Security.
1: You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris sitting in the host chair today. We've got Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, and Steve Robinson all giving their thoughts on the recently released report from the trustees of the Medicare and Social Security trust funds. We will have more on that after a few short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is Av Harris filling in as host today for Bob Bixby, who's actually one of our guests today, along with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. We're taking a look at the newly released annual reports from the trustees of the Medicare and Social Security trust funds. They come to the rather alarming conclusion that absent some major congressional action, the Medicare trust fund will be insolvent within six years by 2028, and the Social Security trust fund will be insolvent by 2035, depending on who you ask. So I would like to turn to you, Steve, because you were making some interesting points about some of the economic assumptions and, and calculations that are factored into the, the reports. You mentioned the fact that you actually worked at the Social Security Administration reviewing some of those assumptions. So you you know a lot about this. I'm thinking specifically of the major economic change that we've seen really to uh, start to impact us in the last eight months or so, which is inflation. How did they factor in inflation? And do you think that uh, it's as accurate as it needs to be?
0: Every summer and fall, you're putting together the assumptions that are used for the report that comes out the following year. And so essentially, they have to lock down all of the assumptions early in the year for the report that comes out. And so when they basically in February said, you know, these are the assumptions we're going to have to use for the report. And in February, of course, we had December and January data. And we saw inflation spike toward the end of last year and the beginning of this year. Now, despite the fact that inflation was spiking, a lot of people were saying, oh, well, you know, maybe it's turned the corner and this is as high as it's going to be and it's going to come down. And so interestingly, the trustees assume that inflation for this calendar year uh, is going to only be 3.8% that's important to Social Security because, as most beneficiaries know, there is what's called the annual cost of living adjustment. And so every year, your benefits are adjusted for inflation. And so whatever your benefit is in December, uh, that amount gets adjusted and you receive that that benefit. December benefit is paid in January. And so this past year, everybody who received a check in January uh, received a 5.9% cost of living adjustment. And so because inflation had already spiked last year, uh, it's toward the end of, of, of the year. And we've already seen through the beginning of this year, inflation, again, is running at about 6%. So it's interesting that after, you know, the 5.9% inflation last year in the COLA and then the 6% inflation as of, as of early this year, uh, they're saying, no, no, you know, the COLA coming up for next year is only going to be 3.8%. So I, I think by anyone's estimation, they have... Significantly underestimated what inflation and what what the cost of living adjustment is going to be for next next calendar year. You know, in fact, I think the uh, the, the chief actuary was was giving an interview earlier this week or late, late last week, and he indicated that that the coal is likely to be closer to eight percent. It's unfortunate that they didn't put that in the report because because again, they settled on on an assumption that I think is 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 too low.
1: If the cost of living adjustment is higher than expected. Right, And in this case, if it's going to be 8% because of the spike of inflation, does that then impact when the Social Security trust funds go insolvent? Because that's a big number.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the the thing. I mean, we're spending about a trillion dollars a year, actually more than a trillion a year on on Social Security benefits. So if you assume, let's say, a 4% COLA, 3.8%, 4% is what's in their assumptions. If it actually goes to 8%, that's twice as much. That's another 4%. Well, if you multiply the 1.2 trillion in benefits by the 4%, you're at about $50 billion. So that $50 billion gets added to the cost of the program. Well, that $50 billion also gets compounded because every subsequent cola gets paid on top of that $50 billion. Now, obviously, the cola only goes to people who are currently collecting, and people who are currently collecting, you know, are, are the elderly and the disabled and they will over time die off and be replaced by new beneficiaries who didn't receive the COLA. But, you know, you sort of calculate what's the compounding effect of that $50 billion offset by the fact that not everybody is going to live for the next, you know, 10, 15 years. Uh, But but potentially that could have shifted the, the insolvency date instead of it being 2034, 2035, it might have been 2033. Uh, I mean, you know, that that $50 billion compounded over the next 10 years is, is a significant number. So, yeah, I mean, every one of these little assumptions can make a difference in terms of both the solvency uh, of the system and the cost in terms of just the year-to-year cost.
1: Right, and, and the amount of time that Congress has to act. Uh, Bob, I want to ask you, um, the, the other big thing that the Social Security and Medicare have an impact on is the annual deficits and the national debt. Um, so, so. What does all this mean for for our growing national debt and, and for the impact on the year-to-year deficits?
2: Well, I think it's important to remember that Social Security and Medicare, despite having dedicated trust funds, do not pay for themselves, quote-unquote. In Medicare in particular, you have payroll taxes and premiums and taxation of benefits that, that uh, pay for the program, but um, th- they're not designed to cover the full cost. In Medicare Part B, we talked about Part A in the trust fund before. Part B, which is covers physician office visits and, and also um, prescription drugs, uh, Part B and Part D, that's designed to be largely funded by general revenues from the federal budget. So a large portion of Medicare is general revenue finance by design. The uh, income is only designed to cover about 25% of the program costs. With Medicare Part A and with Social Security, what's happening now is that they're running large cash deficits, which means that their income, their payroll taxes are not sufficient to pay the benefits. Uh, And that's been true for some time with Social Security, since I think 2010 uh, with uh, Medicare. It's sort of been on and off uh, the last couple of years. But the 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 thing is that Social Security then goes back to the Treasury and says, I've got these trust fund bonds that uh, that you owe me. And so the Treasury secretary has to make good on those bonds. But the Treasury secretary needs to get the money from somewhere, which means, uh, you know, selling bonds to the public, which increases the it, it, as it decreases the debt held to the trust fund. It increases the debt held by the public. Uh, so it may be a wash in terms of uh, of the debt, but it it does require the federal budget to uh, uh, increase the, the the deficit to uh, get the cash to, to make good on those trust fund obligations. So if you look at one thing that we like, like to do is look at the general revenue transfers that go into both programs, and they're really, really quite large. And uh, And when you look out over the longer term and look at the federal budget's unsustainable course, a lot of it has to do with these cash deficits in the trust fund. So this year, general revenue transfers to Social Security and Medicare totaled $550 billion. That was in 2021, according to the trustees. That's a heck of a lot of money, 2.4% of GDP. But if you say, well, okay, that's an anomaly, it it isn't. But let's look out over the longer term. Assuming that full benefits were paid in both programs, if you go out to, say, 2064, in that longer-term timeframe, the transfer is double to uh, 4.8% of GDP. So the magnitude of the cash deficits needed to fund Social Security and Medicare is truly staggering, and it puts pressure on the rest of the budget. Are you going to cut other programs uh, so everything gets diverted to Social Security and Medicare? Are you going to raise taxes to fill that gap? Or are you going to just let the deficit uh, and, and the debt uh, rise higher? Those are hard choices that have yet to be confronted, but they're going to have to be.
1: So, Tory. I wonder if you can give some historical perspective and context. Haven't we seen this movie before the legislation that was uh, enacted in 1983 to shore up Social Security and Medicare? What's different and similar, I guess, between then and now?
3: You're absolutely right. In 1983, the Social Security Trust Fund was within months of, of reaching its depletion date, um, and Congress had to act to avoid uh, benefit cuts. Uh and I think a lot of people like to say, all right, you know, the, the Social Security Trust Fund has until 2035 before uh, it reaches its depletion date now. So we can just wait until 2035, just like we did in 1983. Um, the problem is, is that's a big load of hooey. That's a big myth. And the reason <laughs> why is there are several reasons why. Number one, uh, the shortfall that lawmakers were trying to address in 1983 was a lot smaller. Um, they were looking at a 7 a percent. Reduction in benefits if they hit the depletion date versus twenty percent if we wait until twenty thirty five, and that's a lot. That's a lot of gap to make up really quickly. Um, also, the the deficits that they were looking at um, in the nineteen eighty three uh, reforms, the short, the deficits were were uh, short term deficits. They only needed to get over a, a couple of years worth of, of deficits, but the deficits that we're looking at now and in in twenty thirty five, they're they're permanent. Okay, it's not something that's going to go away. Um, and also, you know, there was a there was a bipartisan commitment in in 1983 that Social Security was going to be and stay remain self financing. You know, when they put together Social Security, when they, they 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 created the program, they created a dedicated revenue source and allocated it solely to uh, the program to protect it from Politics, frankly, and the political cycle, um, and it, it's 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 worked. You know, it's sort social of social security sort of exists over here, and and nobody messes with it as long as you know it it, it can it it works right, it, it functions. Um, you know, but that that coalition, you know, that bipartisan coalition to to maintain social security as a self financed program, you know, that, that that coalition doesn't exist anymore um so that just that just makes it even harder to to enact reforms um and to uh, you know enact reforms when you need them you know there there's a lot of political stasis on the hill um there's a lot of disagreement about how to solve uh social security and so this 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 sort of centrist bipartisan coalition that existed in 1983 doesn't exist now so Waiting until 2035, just because we did that in 1983, is just the wrong, wrong, wrong solution.
1: You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris, sitting in the host chair today. That was Tori Gorman, our Policy Director. We've also got Bob Bixby, our Executive Director, and Steve Robinson, our Chief Economist, all giving their thoughts on the recently released report from the trustees of the Medicare and Social Security Trust Funds. We will have more on that after a few short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is Av Harris filling in as host today for Bob Bixby, who's actually one of our guests today. We're talking about the latest reports from the Medicare and Social Security trust funds that have been recently released, and they paint a rather alarming picture of trust funds that will go insolvent. For Medicare, that's 2028, and for Social Security, by perhaps 2035, depending on who you ask that's not so far away. That will happen if Congress doesn't do something. Now, we've been talking about this today, not only with Bob Bixby, but with Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tory Gorman, and our Chief Economist, Steve Robinson. And one of the things we've been talking about, Bob, I'd love to have you pick up on this, is that, uh, as Tory said, big tax hikes might help solve this problem, or some pretty major benefit cuts might help solve this problem. But I think we would all agree that those solutions are really unpalatable politically. So what else can Congress do? What other tricks do they have up their sleeve to try? Well, I think the default
2: mechanism, the the default mechanism, which I'm afraid we're, we're creeping towards just as we're creeping towards the cliff is that Congress can simply create authority for the two trust funds. Uh, It can credit bonds, special treasury bonds to both trust funds, hence giving the trust funds authority to keep spending. Uh, And, if, if there's you know, politicians who are faced with the choice of uh, a, a sudden benefit cut, a sudden tax hike, or do we want to simply credit more spending authority to trust funds, they're going to take that easy approach uh, any time. And in fact, there's precedent for it uh, the way they've handled the Highway Trust Fund. The Highway Trust Fund has routinely come up short. And in recent years, you know, Congress has refused to raise the gas tax. They don't want to cut highway spending. In fact, they want to increase it. So what they have done is uh, just credit the highway trust fund with more treasury bonds. But it undermines completely the idea of having a trust fund. And this this is the real problem. And a lot of folks that are, you know, social insurance experts are very concerned about this. Because the idea of Social Security always been that you pay in and you get something out based on what you paid in. And it's a contributory program. Mm -hmm. And if all you're going to do is credit general revenues to the program, well, why not just make it a general revenue program? And then why not make it more of a means tested program? So while Congress in its failure to act is actually subtly subverting the whole
1: the whole nature concept of uh, of these trust funds. Steve, I want to ask you, what other kinds of kind of revenue and fiscal gimmicks uh, can Congress employ in order to try to avoid uh, insolvency, but also to try to avoid making some difficult choices that what, what should be, a, be on the lookout for?
0: Well, I mean, there, there, there actually is, is one sort of gimmick that, that exists currently. Um, when Social Security was created, uh, they, they, they established a trust fund and they said that the trust fund would earn a three percent interest rate. Three uh, percent doesn't sound like a much, but that was back in 19, 1935 when they enacted Social Security. So the trust fund started collecting taxes in 37 and they started paying benefits in 1940. And so the initial trust fund was earning a three percent interest rate. Now, over time, since the 1940s, interest rates have risen and, of course, you know, the government borrows money at an interest rate. And, of course, the government has, you know, they have bills and notes and bonds. They have different versions of securities, and each of them have different maturities. They have, you know, one-month uh, one month bills, T-bills, three-month T-bills. And, obviously, short-term uh, interest rates are lower, and a 30-year bond may be paying, you know, 2 or 3%, and a three-month bond may be paying, you know, half or 1%. So there's a a difference there in the interest rate. And so one of the things they did for Social Security was they said that the the, the government securities held by the trust fund will earn the interest on all, the average interest rate on all government securities that are outstanding, that have a maturity of four or more years. So in other words, even though the government borrows, probably a half of the money the government borrows is is short-term, less than four years, Uh, the trust fund gets the higher interest rate of of, of whatever the rate is on maturities of more than four years. So there's a bit of a subsidy there where the government may be borrowing short term at a low interest rate, but the trust fund is going to earn a higher interest rate on a longer term maturity. Now, that's not a huge subsidy, but but it is, in fact, a a bit of a subsidy. Um, The other thing is, as Bob mentioned earlier, you know, there there is a precedent where Congress has simply credited the trust fund with general revenues. Now, they've done it two times of of some distinction. Uh, Back in 1983, they credited the trust funds with $20 billion in general revenue, but they didn't call it that. What they said was, well, you know, we cover the military under Social Security. uh, Military personnel have been covered since the 1950s. And military are paid differently than the rest of the world. Military receive their base pay but they also receive various sort of supplements to their pay. They have a housing allowance. They have a food meal allowance. Those allowances, those extra supplemental wages were not subject to the payroll tax. Only their basic pay was. And so Congress said, well, you know, we're cheating the military out of their benefits because they're only going to get the benefit calculated on their base pay, and that's not their real pay. So what Congress did in 1983 was they said, we're going to credit the trust fund with all of the taxes that we would have collected Had we taxed the supplemental wages of the military over the past, you know, since the 1950s? And so they called it payroll taxes, but they were essentially saying we're going to credit the trust fund with the taxes that we would have collected had we subjected the military supplemental pay to the payroll tax. But we really didn't. But we're going to pretend that we did. So, you know, it's a (laughs) bit of a joke. I mean, it was a gimmick. Clearly, Clearly, it was an accounting gimmick. Um, back in 2011, uh, this was sort of when we were still trying to recover from the from the uh, the financial uh, crisis in 2008 2009. And Congress wanted to um, they wanted to provide some stimulus to the economy, so they they cut the payroll tax by two percentage points. Now, obviously, two percentage points that's about 100 billion dollars. It's a significant amount of money. If you took 100 billion dollars out of the trust fund you would increase or expedite the solvency or the insolvency of the system. And so what Congress did is they said, we're going to cut the payroll tax, but but we're going to credit the trust fund with the money that we would have collected had we not cut the payroll tax. So they essentially said, we're going to collect 2% less in payroll taxes from everybody, but we're going to credit the trust fund with an equivalent amount. Uh, And and of course, then they extended that 2% reduction into 2012, so, both in 11 and in 2012, they credited the trust fund with about 200, over $200 billion in general revenue that represented the taxes that they would have collected had they not cut the payroll tax. So, you know, clearly there are some precedents where, you know, Congress <laughs> has not been exactly pure in maintaining the pay as you go. Uh, self-financing uh, nature of the system that, that, that it was, you know, initially started started as. So, you know, I, I am a little worried that when push comes to shove, Congress may get creative uh, and simply credit the trust fund with additional interest or additional general revenue. They may create some pretense by which they do this, but clearly it, it is a violation of sort of the original intent of, of a exactly. payroll tax finance system.
1: So, uh, Bob, there was a serious uh, effort at, at one point uh, during the 1990s that Concord Coalition was involved with um, to, to really address and, and, and to fix Social Security and, and Medicare. Uh, you were involved in that. Do you want to talk about that just for a couple of minutes and what that entailed? Who, who was at the table and how yeah in, uh, Well, in
2: 1998, President Clinton and his administration came up with what I think was a very clever idea and hopefully might serve as a model for the future. They wanted to to do a Social Security reform plan. And they said, let's have national forums a national dialogue on this. The president would agree to take part, to draw attention. And we'll have the uh, forums organized by a beneficiary champion, AARP, and by a group that champions fiscal responsibility, the Concord Coalition and the administration tasked our, our two organizations with working it out, try to figure out how to present the information, how to have the dialogue structured. All the administration said was, President Clinton will, will take part. Uh, they didn't rule anything out except a total privatization of the system, but they, they didn't rule out private accounts per se, uh, They just said, you know, we're not going to totally privatize the system. But other than that, let's have a dialogue on things. And uh, I thought that was very clever. We did organize those. And at the meantime, there were there were behind the scenes efforts going on, which uh, Tory may well have been part of as a staffer on the Hill. There were bipartisan efforts going on at that time to work out actual specific legislation. So the idea was Concord and AARP would do these high profile public events to get attention while on the inside back in Washington, the administration would be working the details with members of Congress. And that was being done on a thoroughly bipartisan basis, I might add. And and uh, Tory was part of one such effort um, uh, with uh, Congressman Stenholm and and Congressman Colby and uh, um, the upshot was it was moving along very well until President Clinton got into trouble. Uh, the political support that President Clinton would need for impeachment from the entire Democratic Party put a, uh, an end to the sort of bipartisan cooperation that you needed to do something very, very politically difficult like Social Security form. President Clinton was taking a chance because a lot of Democrats were opposed to that. And and the Republicans that were willing to work with President Clinton were taking a chance because there were Republicans that didn't want that. So it required a lot of trust and delicate negotiations. And once you had that whole impeachment thing on the table, it uh, ruined any chance we had at actually making it work. But it was a wonderful, wonderful model where we're way, way far away from that right now. But I think it's going to take something like
1: that to get anything done. Well, we are going to have to leave it there. Thank you, Bob, Tori, and Steve, for coming on this week. This is Av Harris. I've been filling in as host. We've been taking a look at the latest trustees' reports from the Social Security and Medicare trust funds. You can catch this program and others online at ConcordCoalition.org. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week for another edition of Facing the Future.